Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations on all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Brad Bianco. Today's guest is Bernardo O'Connor. Bernardo is a PhD student here at the uni studying the ecology of the parasitic plant Cassypha and its possible use as a biocontrol to control invasive species here in South Australia. Bernardo O'Connor, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you guys for having me. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So, I'm glad we're doing another plant one, and we've got an interesting one. We're talking about parasitism oh, in yeah. plants. So go ahead, tell us about yourself and what it is that you do. Well, uh, I'm a PhD student here in, at the Adelaide Uni. Um, I'm studying a native parasitic plant called Cassytha pubescens, and it's a fascinating, quirky plant that has a lot of weird ecological things going on. And, um, well, my project stems from another guy's research, Dr. Rob Sirocco, and he's been working on the physiological effects Cassytha has on native versus invasive uh, host species. And how did you come across this project? What did you study as an undergrad? Uh, well, I studied zoology and ecology as an undergrad, so I was never interested in plants. I found them to be extremely dull things, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and I did my honors in a small amphipod, a, a crustacean, tiny, tiny what do you call them, uh, lobster-like things. Oh, right. And I was studying uh, the, how the shape of the claw varied across uh, different locations in Australia. Um, and then I, I really wanted to work with Jose Facelli, who's a, you know, the ecology lecturer here, really good guy. And I asked them if he had any projects available, uh, but they had to include some sort of animal component because, again, you know, I was terribly horrified about studying boring plants. So he sent me a couple of papers about parasitic plants and some of Dr. Rob's work. And I thought, okay, there might be something really interesting here to do for a PhD. So I feel like people are going to be familiar with animal parasites, like ticks and things like that. Absolutely. But plants can be parasitic too. Yeah, yeah. Do you I want mean, to tell us how, how parasitic plants might have evolved in some of their ecology? Well, theory uh, predicted that parasitic plants would thrive and would only be supported in places where there was plenty of sun, plenty of nutrients, and a lot of productivity, right? So that all these excess could support another organism that mm. you know could leech off of these guys. Hmm. But observations, we do know that parasitic plants mostly occur in nutrient-poor systems where productivity is limited by the availability of nutrients and um, also places where there's plenty of light. And they reckon that this is because parasites are actually poor light competitors. So they have more of a chance to intercept sunshine where there's little productivity and fewer shrubs and a lot of irradiance. And, and yeah, that's how they reckon parasitic plants came about. So light isn't a limiting factor, but nutrients is. So the parasite is getting its nutrients from its host. Yes. So when it comes to Cassypha, this thing doesn't have leaves. No, it doesn't. It is doesn't. it stem photosynthesizing? Yes, it is. It's all it's all like green stem, so it's full of photosynthetic tissue, you know, full of chlorophyll. It's all green, pretty much. But yeah, no leaves at all. They're reduced down to scales, minute, tiny scales that you can't really tell apart without a really good microscope. So is Cassytha getting its carbohydrate source 
as well as its nitrogen and phosphorus from its host? Or? We're not terribly sure, but we do know it's getting water and nutrients from uh, its host. Carbohydrates tapping into the phloem, we're not terribly sure. But yeah, we do know it's getting water and nutrients from it. All right, so does it have roots? It has no roots. Has no roots. Yeah, it has no roots. I just assume it has roots when it germinates, but no. Yes, it does when it germinates. Um, so these guys come in tiny balls of really hard, woody, almost like seed tissue, and um, they germinate several weeks after a fire, once potential hosts have been established oh, okay. around. Time lag. Yeah, there's a bit of a time lag. So this thing is extremely difficult to germinate. But yeah, it pops up after quite a long time after fires, once potential hosts are more or less established. And then a little green stem with no cotyledons, nothing, pops up and starts twirling around anti-clockwise, I think, just spinning and spinning, looking for things to attach to. And it's pretty dumb. It'll attach to anything, steel posts, wooden posts, rocks, anything. So you've got no cotyledons. You've just got a, a green shoot. Yep. Searching. Searching and spinning and spinning, hoping to touch something. And once it makes contact, it starts uh, forming suckers and then spinning around that. Keeps so the, on spinning. These suckers are called Haustoria, that's right? Yeah, that's right. So what is actually going on here? Is What is the interface between the parasite's tissues and the host tissues like? How does it actually work? Well, they form xylem-xylem connections. Well, basically, um, the parasite, once it touches uh, the tissue of a suitable host it starts breaking down the first layers and then tries to insert its xylem, grow into the host, oh, down into the xylem, making connections. It is, it is. And it's <laughs> fascinating to look at the slide pictures. And yeah, that's how they get their nutrients. You said it breaks down the tissue of the host to get into it? Look, precisely how it breaks down, uh, we don't know. It could be like, the we know that it penetrates. Yep. Uh, I don't know if it digests layers or mm. something. But it's certainly a good place for the host to start blocking off potential connections. Right. And we do know of quite a few native species that stop the parasite in its tracks, minimizing uh, how much it can take. Do, from do we know how they do that? Uh, forming tissues, forming layers of woody tissue. Uh, so it actually puts a physical barrier between itself and the parasite. Yeah, yeah. So you can, you can block off this parasite by forming physical barriers or through chemical defenses, uh, like secondary metabolites. Yeah. yeah. So like poisons to poison the parasite? Pretty much. Wow. Yeah, um, it depends. We, we're still not sure this, this area has been, had you know, very, very little research in, across all parasitic species, and it's pretty brand new. Um, we're, we only know a little bit about Rhinanthus, uh, which is a parasitic plant, a root parasitic plant uh -huh. in the family Orobankaceae. Yeah, and these are like the, the economically detrimental parasites, the Orobankaceae. They're like the, the broom rapes, the crop, crop parasites. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But to be fair, I think parasitic plants and all parasites in general have a undeservedly bad reputation. Yeah. I think that they're the good guys. They're the good guys? Yeah. And we'll definitely talk about community level effects Absolutely. But I'm still, there's still a couple of questions I have about the, the host to parasite interaction. Mm. So you mentioned that native plants can block off or resist the parasite in yeah. some way. Is yeah. there host specificity for the parasites? Can Cassytha only parasitize some plants or is, there, is it a broad range of plants it can attach to? Uh, we know that Cassytha pubescens, the species that I'm studying, is fairly generalist. We know it likes growing on leguminous hosts. 
are probably because the parasite itself is nutrient limited mm -hmm. and these uh, nitrogen fixing shrubs, the legumes, mm -hmm. uh, they've got you know plenty of nitrogen compared to other plants and probably have greater concentrations of, of nitrogen in, in their tissues and therefore can are better, more suitable hosts for the parasite to be nice and productive. But we do see it growing on things that are not leguminous and again because it's pretty stupid it'll attach itself to anything right and whether it can form connections with that or not um, we would like to determine that uh, going out on surveys because you see it attached to plenty of things mm -hmm. but whether it is infecting that or not it's very difficult to tell and this is one of the problems about parasitic vines and one of the things that makes Cassitha so unique uh, we know things like mistletoes attached to a single host at a time because yep. you know there's like a tiny shrub that attached onto a eucalypt but predicting what these parasitic vines or rutemic parasites like rhinanthus can do is difficult because they can simultaneously connect to many hosts mm, which do like not have yeah to a whole network and they don't have to be the same species yeah. could connect to several different species at the same time and maybe acquire different levels of nutrients or different compounds from different plants depending on their absolutely needs. whereas cassitha can only attach to a single host no 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 oh, cassitha can attach well because it has this um it's, a, it's like a green mass spaghetti spreading <laughs> spreading throughout and parasitic spaghetti yeah it's exactly <laughs> that's the title of this episode <laughs> <laughs> i like that but yeah, because it can attach to so many things at the same time, it's difficult to know where it's getting what, who's allowing what to flow through, and who's responsible for the growth, and yeah. You mentioned the word hemiparasite. Yes. What is the difference between a hemiparasite and a holoparasite? A holoparasite is uh, generally uh, a parasitic plant that depends entirely upon its hosts for resources. Including carbohydrates. Including carbohydrates, water, and nutrients. Yeah. Whereas hemiparasites are able to photosynthesize, mm -hmm. and so they probably take less carbohydrates and more water and nutrients. So something like uh, the North American Indian pipe plant or some of our native broom rapes here, they don't have any photosynthetic tissue at all. So they're relying on their, these are holoparasites, yeah. relying on their hosts for 100% of all of their resources. Absolutely, absolutely. That's which pretty is, crazy. Yeah, which is probably what makes Cassitha relatively benign, you know? It's able to kind of sustain on its own. Hmm. Yeah. Except it doesn't have any roots, so. Except no roots, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Cassitha belongs to a really interesting group of plants. It does. So it's got a very interesting taxonomy. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, Cassitha is the only parasitic genus in the family of laurels. And you might know that some of the laurels are uh, things like cinnamon and avocado. And so for this parasitic plant to be the only thing in the whole family that's evolved a parasitic habit is pretty interesting. And we don't know anything about its fossil, about, there's no fossil record. So we don't really know where it came about. Yeah. What um, were the series of steps leading up to, you know, such a different, markedly different form than its closest re living relative, which is some kind of tree, right? Yeah, and Neocinnamonium is its closest living relative, as far as I know, and that's a proper tree. And so for it to sort of differentiate into uh, a vine that looks like spaghetti with no <laughs> leaves and tiny white flowers, yeah. it's pretty bizarre. Right. What pollinates Cassitha? Oh, you know, we're not really sure. We're not really sure. That's how little research there is about uh, Cassitha's so, so there's ecology. So many, so many aspects of its ecology that we just don't know. Absolutely. What about community-level effects? How do parasites in a community affect the community as a whole? Well, that's a fascinating question, and that's exactly what my project is about. Um, we're trying to see beyond parasite-host interactions. 
What we know about most parasites is based on research directly about the host and the parasite, how they interact, what the parasite takes from the host and how the host reacts. But a guy named Dr. David Watson started looking to mistletoes and with the indirect effects it might have. Mm -hmm. And basically, because of their feeding mode, mistletoes accumulate resources in their tissues in order to withdraw nutrients and water through osmosis from the host, right? And also, all these um, resources remain in their tissues, in the leaves, and, and they're not withdrawn before they're shed. Mm -hmm. And so, because they need to withdraw resources from their host through this osmosis, they accumulate a high amount of resources in their foliage. Once these are shed, they're still full of nutrients, they fall into the ground, they decompose quickly, mm -hmm. they form a nice deep layer of litter that provides a habitat and resources mm -hmm. for things like bugs, bacteria, and their predators, including things like spiders and birds. Right. And so it can cause a sort of bottom-up trophic chain. Right. So like it's it's accumulate it's depositing nutrients into the soil yes. at a greater rate than its host because of this osmotic process. Absolutely. So and it's it's contributing to like this level of like patch heterogeneity, right? Exactly. And as you know, Jensen's inequality, uh be, and because mistletoes are patchily distributed, they more they form these nutrient rich islands. And yeah, that can increase productivity in a system, increases spatial heterogeneity. It's just good all around for uh, diversity. So in a comparison of two systems, one that has parasites present and one that doesn't, the one with parasites present is likely to have a higher level of overall productivity? Not necessarily, not necessarily. But um, parasites um, may be a, an indicator of ecosystem health, the mm. fact that there are abundant enough resources mm, to sustain true. this you know, higher trophic level, if you like, because they, they're not quite primary producers, they're not quite secondary consumers. They're sort of in between, and this position gives them really interesting ecological quirks. Huh. Yeah. Cool. Is Cassithra a keystone species? Well, it's very difficult to say yeah. that. And I feel I like it's not under the strictest definition, right? Oh, look, it, even the concept of a keystone species is very controversial on its own, and, you know, what qualifies it or, or whatnot. But parasites themselves, by acting like mistletoes, enriching mm -hmm. uh, patch fertility and, and that having bottom-up effects, they're certainly considered something called a keystone resource. Keystone resource. A keystone resource, yeah. Especially in nutrient-poor systems like Australia. Yeah. Um, well, all these effects are much stronger in nutrient-poor systems. And thus, they're considered a keystone resource uh, because they're so important in driving... Uh, productivity and diversity for such small insubordinate parts of an ecological community. You know, less than a percent of the entire ecological community would be considered parasites, but they have these strong, ah, greatly disproportional yeah, effects. Yeah, disproportionate to their, their level of presence in the, in the ecosystem. Absolutely, which right. is what makes them a sort of keystone. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. So, Cassitha, it's a parasitic vine, but it's not the only parasitic vine. And parasitism's evolved independently at, at least a dozen times. Yeah, that's right. And one of my one of my favorite things about nature is convergent evolution. Oh yeah. And there's such a great example, and I wonder if you want to share that with us. Yeah. Well, Cassite is pretty unique, as you know. It's a parasitic vine. It looks bizarre, no leaves. But there's another thing from a completely different family, and that's called a Cuscuta. The genus name is Cuscuta, 
and you can find these, these are the guys. daughters, right? The daughters, the proper yeah. daughters. These guys are holoparasitic. They're a little bit more reddish orange than mm. Kasaitha. So no chlorophyll in this stem. No chlorophyll. Or minimal. Mm, very minimal, yeah. probably. These guys look almost identical to Kasaitha to the extent that you literally have to wait for the thing to flower to be certain what it is. And these uh, cuscutus introduced into Australia, and it's a pretty bad weed, uh, especially I think in New South Wales. And probably because it's holoparasitic and it's probably a greater um, source of stress for its hosts. Mm-hmm. Whereas Kasaitha, being you know the opposite, it's hemiparasitic. It can acquire its own resources to some extent. But yeah, these guys are super similar. And the only way you can reliably tell them apart is because Kasaitha has six flowers, uh, six petals, sorry, and Kuskura has five. And when it comes to ecosystem level effects, are there major differences between Kasaitha and Kuskura? Well. You know, we can't prematurely say that Kasaitha has or hasn't, um, which is, you know, let me get to the end of my project first. And we'll okay. see. <laughs> but um, we predict that if Kasaitha is doing the same thing as mistletoes, that is enriching its own tissues and periodically shedding them, therefore releasing large amounts of nutrient into the soil, uh, fertilizing the patch, allowing uh, plants to thrive from that, providing a habitat for arthropods and their predators and birds and all that. If Kasaitha is doing this, it would be, again, it, it, it'd be hard to, uh, it'd be premature to say, oh, Kasaitha does or doesn't have these community level effects. Ah, okay. So you, you're yet to determine. Yet to so, determine, yes. All right. Yes. Um, but in terms, if I were to right now try and predict it, I would say that Kasaitha may have those effects because uh, it stores all these uh, nutrients and tissues in it and periodically releases them. It is perennial, so Kasaitha is perennial, whereas uh, Kuskura is annual. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. So I don't think that within that year it could, even though it could attain relatively great densities, um, it wouldn't be such a permanent thing to carry on. Huh. Continually accumulating resources. Yeah, and mm. releasing them in, sufficient, in sufficiently large amounts. Right, so you've got these annual have. pulses if it is accumulating nutrients. But yeah. to me, this sounds like this is just more stuff we have to study because we just haven't really looked into it yet. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's so, a lot of work to be doing. When it comes to native versus um, non-native introduced plants, you know, is there some scope to maybe use Cassitha as a biological control if it's parasitizing non-native plants preferentially? Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Oh, yeah. Well, that is actually uh, quite a large portion of my project. So I'll give you a bit of background. Uh, again, Dr. Rob Sirocco uh, had been working on the physiological effects that Kasaitha has on native hosts compared to its effects on invasive hosts. And he found that Kasaitha could grow about 10 times larger gram for gram on invasive species compared to natives, mm. um, especially on things like gorse, Ulex europaeus, which is a terrible weed. Yeah, really uh, bad. Here in New South Wales, Tasmania, and also Queensland, I think. And New Zealand, it's everywhere. And it's absolutely, it, it's all around the world. Yeah. But we may be able to do something with Kasaitha about it because it also reduces its ability to form nodules uh, that host nitrogen-fixing bacteria which is a key part of gorse's success. In the roots of the plant. In the roots of the plant. Yep. So when Kasaitha infects gorse, it has smaller nodules, smaller roots, smaller spines. It has less seed production. And the beauty of all this is that those effects, if at all present on native hosts, are far, far smaller. Mm-hmm. And we think that it's because 
Cassitha, it has been here for a couple of million years. The native plant species and mm. potential hosts have had a good chance to sort of create some resistance and acquire mm. uh, defenses against the parasite. Whereas these weeds that have been introduced here less than 200 years ago haven't had much of a chance and are fairly naive in terms of their defenses. Mm -hmm. So we reckon that Cassitha would be a good biological control agent against uh, weeds like gores, Citizus coparius, which is Scott broom, yep. and blackberry. Oh, blackberry. And so not a leguminous species. Not a leguminous species, no. Right. Yeah. And it still, it still parasitizes non-leguminous plants like blackberry? It does, it does. In native and invasive. At the same rates, or is it, does it prefer leguminous plants? I imagine that it, in a sense, it performs better on leguminous plants, yep. again, because it's uh, nutrient limited. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's germinating, I guess, just by chance. Whatever it's next to is going to be its likely host. Yeah, likely. So long as it hasn't developed um, resistance. Mm -hmm. Because we do know of, of some species that can completely block off the hostoria, uh, like Leptospermum. Um, so tea trees? Yeah, tea trees. They're almost completely immune. When oh. a guy called, um, his last name was Shen, he did radioactive phosphorus experiments. Uh -huh. Leptospermum would not allow any connectivity between the parasite cool. and the shrub, even though the, the parasite was nicely attached onto it. Whereas, compared to Citizus coparius, the scotch broom, the phosphorus was flowing freely. Yeah, so it's exchanging nutrients. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, we do have some idea that there's this differential impact between natives and invasive hosts. And you mentioned that the germination followed a period of fire. So there's like, it, I imagine there are particular ecological environmental cues for germination. How would you actually go about applying a biological control like Cassitha? Um, the easiest way, which is what we've been doing, I've been helping uh, Rob do this. We literally infect uh, gorse plants with a mature plant that, uh, with a mature gorse that had already Cassitha on it, bring it back to uni, uh, infect some other gorses, put them in big pots, <laughs> and take them to national parks. So you're, you're taking gorses infected with Cassitha yeah. into national parks and plants? <laughs> yes. It, it's that all, is not what I expected. <laughs> yeah, but it's all legit, I promise. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's the best way because it's terribly hard to germinate. Yeah. Terribly hard. Uh, and it's probably because of this dormancy that it precisely has to wait for potential hosts to establish themselves a little bit before it can go out searching. Yeah. Well, any new tool in our arsenal against invasive plants. I mean, I've done most of my work in this field on invasive plants. Yeah. And so, yeah, any help would be appreciated. It would be. And I think it would be especially good if we do find that Cassitha can fertilize soil patches and yeah. have those bottom-up effects. And this is the sort of Robin Hood hypothesis, right? If it's stealing, if it's having this asymmetric effect on invasive plants mm. and it steal all of the resources... And having those bottom-up effects from these weeds that are dominant and oh, displacing really our natives, cool. right? Yeah. Um, I think that would be wonderful. So not only could it be a tool to suppress invasive species, but it could also be a tool for restoring habitats. Yeah, yeah. that's really cool. Rubbing from the, the weeds and giving to the natives. Exactly, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Bernardo, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. If people want to find out more about your work or find you on social media, how can they, how can they get around that? Um, I don't have a personal Twitter right now, but um, I do manage my laboratory's Twitter account, which is Facelli Eco Lab. And yeah. Check it out. Check it out, please. Bernardo, thanks for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. Cheers.
listening to today's podcast. This podcast was hosted by me, Bradley Bianco, and produced with my dedicated team, Christopher Jolly, Mile Taran, Adam Toombs, and music by Darcy Whitaker. If you'd like to support the production of this show, please consider joining the Biology Society as a member at www.biologysocietysa.com. If you're enjoying this content, why don't you check out our back catalogue? We release a new episode every fortnight.